Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I don't have any tattoos, but I very nearly did have a tattoo, and it was very nearly this. Imagine an outline of a diamond, basically a square, but on its point, with a double circle inside, all done in very fine red line, with little red letters saying, made in the USA, Avery Island. Hmm. And inside the circle, in big green, all caps, it would say, McElhenney Co. Pepper Sauce. Exactly. And in even bigger letters, emblazoned across the middle of everything, it would say, you guessed it, Tabasco. I very nearly got that tattoo. I was about 18 or 19 in a tattoo parlour in San Francisco with my friend. And she got a tattoo and I nearly got that, but then I chickened out. But I love it as a piece of design, as a logo. It's absolutely beautiful. It's old and it's so reminiscent of Americana and kind of another world. It's a beautifully designed logo. One of the most iconic brands on earth, I would argue, Tabasco. It's everywhere. Wherever you go in the world, you'll probably see a bottle of Tabasco sauce knocking around in a grocery store somewhere. We all understand the words Tabasco pepper sauce. We all know what it means. But those other words, this is the thing that's been intriguing me. Avery Island and McElhenney Co. And they hold the secret to the source's origins because every bottle I didn't know this every bottle of Tabasco on earth is made in exactly the same place as the very first one that was ever made way back in 1868 and it was in a place or on a place called Avery Island and it's deep down in the state of Louisiana three miles inland from the Gulf of Mexico surrounded you can imagine on all sides by wetlands and bayous a place that's home to 20,000 camellias and at one time to Edmund McHilhenny, who was the man who invented Tabasco sauce. And to tell us the story is the official historian of Tabasco and all things McElhenney, the one and only Shane Bernard. Welcome to Patented. It's my podcast about the history of inventions. I'm Dallas Campbell. Fasten your seatbelts. Get ready for some hot stuff. <laughs> I'm with Shane Bernard. Am I, how am I pronouncing your surname? Is it Bernard? Is that the American or Bernard? Bernard, yeah. Bernard, as in Jeffrey Bernard. Yes. Anyway, nice to have you on the show. What's your background, by the way? Because I know you're the historian at Tabasco, but where do you hail from originally? I hail from a town called Lafayette, Louisiana, which is only about 25 miles from here and considered the 
de facto capital of Cajun and Creole, South Louisiana. And that is my ancestry. My grandparents spoke French, for example. And my specialty is actually Cajun and Creole history. But I research a lot of other historical topics as well, including Tabasco sauce, the place where it's made, Avery Island, Louisiana, the families who live here, and so on. How did you get the Tabasco gig? I mean, it's kind of interesting that Tabasco sauce was like, we need a historian. Well, the family has been here on Avery Island since 1818 and seems to have kept everything. I can tell you, for example, Edmund McElhinney, the man who invented Tabasco, had been a banker beforehand and a bookkeeper. So he's very meticulous record keeper. So once he starts to make Tabasco in 1868, Edmund keeps all of his incoming mail and records little synopses of his outgoing mail in two notebooks. And so we have all of that. So we know an awful lot about the very early period of Tabasco sauce. It's funny, actually, when I knew we were doing this episode, you know, because on this show, we cover lots of different kinds of technology, but I can think of none as important as Tabasco sauce. I'm a bit of a fan. I'm trying to work out why I'm such a fan. I remember years and years ago when I was in America, and I very nearly got a Tabasco sauce logo tattooed on my arm. And as much as I love the sauce, I love the logo probably just as much. I don't know what it is about that logo, that diamond-shaped logo, the very, very particular font, the colors, just the text. There's something really, I don't know what it is, Americana about it. And I think, I don't know, I was always obsessed by kind of Americana, I think, when I was younger. And I did lots of road trips around America. And wherever you'd go kind of doing a road trip, every diner you'd go into, there'd be a bottle of Tabasco. And there was just always something very cool about Tabasco. I didn't get the tattoo, by the way. Maybe I should. Have people got... Oh, yes. I've seen Tabasco tattoos. In fact, on my computer in the archives here on Avery Island, I have a folder, Tabasco tattoos. I don't know, six (laughs) or eight examples of Tabasco tattoos. And we're an iconic brand. In fact, in the U.S. among consumers, we rank up there with Disney and Harley Davidson and Nike and brands like that. It's really interesting that I would not get a Disney tattoo or a Nike tattoo or a Harley Davidson tattoo, but I would consider getting a Tabasco tattoo. I just kind of wonder, like, why is it such a big brand? Well, not just in America, around the world. Why does it scream that sort of Americana, do you think? We were not the first pepper sauce, but we were the first pepper sauce brand with really global distribution. So in that sense, we're the leader and we are in... Over 195 countries and territories around the world. The UN says there's only 195 countries in the world to begin with. Well, I think, I may be wrong, but I think there's been Tabasco in space. There has been. There has been. In fact, we have photographs. There you go, yeah. I'm probably the only guy who goes to the NASA website and then zooms in on their food to see if I can find Tabasco in there. And we have photographs of it. It's on Skylab. It was on the space shuttle menu. It's been on the International Space Station. It's up there now. So not just 195 countries, but wow, you've been off planet. Right. That's pretty good. Actually, when you talk to astronauts about food, they always say, well, actually, your taste buds when you're in space, you don't get the same taste. And actually, you need you know spicy foods and, and things like that just to pep up the flavor. That's right. In fact, they often cite Tabasco by name as the solution to that problem. There you go. <laughs> I'm waffling on. Okay, let's start at the beginning. Looking at the Tabasco label, there's some words on it, and I want to break it down. The first thing I want to talk about is location, because we have this thing that says 
Avery Island along the middle of the diamond. But beyond Tabasco, Avery Island doesn't really exist in my consciousness other than Tabasco. Where is it? What is it? Is it an island? What happens on it other than making Tabasco? It's not an island in the traditional sense. It's not surrounded by an open body of water. It's three miles inland from the Gulf of Mexico and is surrounded on all sides by wetlands. So in that sense, it's an island. It's a high point surrounded by wetlands. And by wetlands, I mean grassy marsh, wooded swamp, and what we call bayous here in South Louisiana, which is just our word for slow-moving, muddy river. Maybe outside of this region, a lot of people think that bayous are the same thing as a swamp or a marsh, but it's not. It's just a slow-moving, muddy river. And the island is virtually surrounded by bayous skirting its border. And so when you add all that up, it is certainly insular in nature, but it's not a traditional island. Where does the name Avery come from? Is that named after someone? Or Yeah, so Edmund McElhaney, the guy who invented Tabasco, married into the Avery family that owned this place. And the owner was a guy named Judge D.D. Avery, formerly a lawyer in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And the island had several names from the late colonial period of Louisiana history, because Louisiana was French, then Spanish for decades, and then Napoleon took it back for three years and then sold it to the U.S. in 1803. The Louisiana Purchase, I remember that from my history. Right, in 1803, right. But eventually, after Judge Avery bought up the entire island in bits and pieces, it became Avery's Island with an apostrophe S, and then they very quickly dropped that. Got it. Okay. And if we were to kind of come to Avery Island, just for our listeners, just you talked about bayous, slow-moving water. What happens on the island other than Tabasco? Is there a community? Is We actually get over 100,000 tourists a year, <laughs> including a large international group too, mainly from France. I mean, we get a lot of British people here, but there's a historical connection between France and Louisiana. So a lot of French tourists take day trips by bus out of New Orleans and come to the island. So when you get here, you cross a causeway across that coastal salt marsh. And you may not notice this, but you're slowly going upward. We only have one paved road on the island. It's an unincorporated community. It's privately owned. And the Tabasco sauce factory is here, which is a a huge factory. So all the Tabasco sauce in the world is made here on Avery Island. That's the bit I'm struggling because Tabasco sauce is everywhere. Like you say, it's on all over Earth and in space. And it's just made, there's one factory. Yeah, there are some time periods where there are exceptions to the rule. For example, in the 1950s and 60s, like due to post-war austerity measures in certain countries, including England, we sent the finished sauce to those countries and bottled there to get around tariffs. Other than that very short period where we did that, it has always been made entirely here on the island, except I should say we only grow maybe one or 2% of the peppers used in the sauce here on the island. What we do with the peppers here is mainly extract the seeds, use that as seed stock, which we send out to Central America, South America, and Africa, because that's where we grow our peppers. Okay, great. You've painted a lovely picture for us. Let's go back in time, in our time machine, in our DeLorean. Why did it start? Why did it start there? And you mentioned this name, Edmund McElhenney. Is that how we pronounce it? McElhenney. And you'll see his name 
on the actual label, that iconic label. Who was he and what the heck was he doing on Avery Island? Edmund McElhenney was an American of Scots-Irish ancestry. So the McElhenneys came to North America before it was the United States, when Pennsylvania and Maryland were British colonies, and they settled here. You mean they're not British colonies anymore? No. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I think you guys should come back to the fold. Honestly, we could do great things. Sorry, I interrupted your flow. You were talking about Edmund. Yeah, so Edmund McElhenney was born in 1815 in Hagerstown, Maryland, right on the border with Pennsylvania. The building he was born in, which is an old red brick building, is still there. It's pockmarked with bullets in the front because the next town over, right across the state line, is Gettysburg. And this building was a tavern. Edmund's father was a tavern keeper. It's interesting that in his advertisements in the local newspaper, he twice says in the same ad that it's a genteel tavern, which I think is his way of getting across. It's not one of those kind of taverns because his wife and children all lived in the same building. And Edmund's father, you know, he was on the local fire team, fire brigade. He was active in the local Presbyterian church. He was on the board of the local bank. He also served as the coroner. You didn't have to have any knowledge of medicine at all to be a coroner back then. But through those banking connections, we believe Edmund decided to pursue a career in the financial field. And he disappears from the historical record between the time his father dies in 1832 and in 1840-41, when he shows up in New Orleans working for the Bank of Louisiana. And he works his way up the ladder at the Bank of Louisiana from bookkeeper to independent bank owner. He saves up his money. He has a very puritanical work ethic, constant self-improvement. We know this because he writes about this in his letters. And, you know, he becomes an independent banker right before the Civil War. And it's because he's financially ruined by the Civil War, being a Southerner, that he comes up with this really bizarre idea, why don't I make a pepper sauce and sell it? Okay, let's just pause that. So that's nice. So he was a banker, he loses his money because of the Civil War, has this brainwave to make pepper sauce. Why? Where did this idea come from? Was he a foodie? Did he like cooking? or? Like oh, he was definitely a foodie. And we know that because... In his letters, he frequently goes off on these tangents describing in fine detail what he had for dinner that night. So he's obviously a, a foodie. And I'm assuming that hot sauces would have been maybe there at the time. I mean, in terms of the different cultures that would have lived in that particular area, obviously there would have been Spanish influence, French, Mexican. Is that right? He would have tasted all these sauces? Oh yeah, you're absolutely right. And in fact, that subject comes up a lot in my field, because what is it about New Orleans and South Louisiana in general? And I should explain, Central or North Louisiana is very Anglo-Saxon Protestant, whereas South Louisiana is more French Catholic, Spanish Catholic. It's described by one of my professors as really being the northern rim of the Caribbean world. And I think that's right. And so because of the geography here, New Orleans was just at the right place to be heavily influenced by Native American culture, Spanish culture, French culture, but also African and later African American culture. And so as corny as it may sound to compare the culture here to gumbo, it really is 
fitting because if you look at the different ingredients, first of all, the word gumbo comes from West Africa. It's what West Africans called okra. And okra, not so much today, but in the past was considered the essential ingredient in gumbo. Gumbo is a stew, if you don't know the word gumbo, listeners. It's a stew, yeah. The roux came from French influences. The filet powder, which is just ground up sassafras, that came from Native Americans. The red pepper came from the Spanish, who got it originally from the Native Americans in Central and South America. So it really is a good example of all the influences here and how they would come together to make something new. Okay, great. So he's a foodie. He's submerged in these food cultural things. Exactly. First of all, the name Tabasco. Let's just look at the name and then let's just go through the essentials in the recipe. So Tabasco, I think it's Mexican, isn't it? Doesn't it come from a Mexican? That's right. In fact, it comes from the Nahuatl dialect or language, which is what the Aztecs used. Did he just like the word? Was he looking for a brand, a name and thought, okay, that kind of looks good on the bottle? Well, in his testimony in a 1911 trademark infringement lawsuit, Edmund's son, John Avery McElhenney, said, my father chose the name because he found it, quote, euphonious. He thought it sounded nice. (laughs) (laughs) It does. But I think there's more to it than that. Now, I can't prove this, but Tabasco was the name of a state in Mexico, a river, and also a city. It has a different name now, but there was a lot of trade between the port of Tabasco, Mexico, and the port of New Orleans, which was the second largest port in the U.S. at the time, right after New York City. But both Tabasco, Mexico, and New Orleans are on the Gulf of Mexico. They're not that far apart, all things considered. And I think when Edmund needed a name for his product, he thought to himself, well, you know, a lot of people in New Orleans and along the Gulf Coast associate the name Tabasco with spice. Not just red pepper, but other types of spice too, because if you look at the shipping records, there's an awful lot of allspice coming out of that same area. And he said, you know, I think I'll call it Tabasco because people around here already associate that word with spice. Sex. It might surprise you to know that, well, it's been around for a while now. In fact, we are all the living, walking, breathing, talking proof that sex has been around for a long time. And over on the Betwixt the Sheets podcast with me, Kate Lister, I will be rooting around for the kinkiest, quirkiest stories in the history of sex, scandal and society. Or in other words, the best bits. Well, at least I think so. From bras to BDSM, from African warrior queens to witches, join me as I bed hop throughout time and civilizations to get under the cover with the most fascinating things that we've been doing, not to mention the downright weird. For example, did you know that men in ancient Greece were so turned on by a naked statue of Aphrodite that it had to be protected by guards. We have accounts of men trying to have sex with the statue. It caused a sensation. And that university professors once moonlighted as grave robbers. We were executing less and less people, so Mm -hmm. there was a real shortage. If you want to hear about all of this and more, then join me betwixt the sheets today, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm looking, Shane, I'm looking at the patent. This is from 1870. And I'm just going to read it out. So just jump in if you've got anything to add. Because he writes, my method of preparing the sauce is as follows. The ripe fruit is mashed to a pulp. Now, what fruit is he talking about? Red pepper. Red pepper. So just normal bell pepper or spicy or what kind of peppers? Yeah, bell pepper has no heat at all. So he's talking about a pepper that is fairly hot. In the great scheme of things, it's not all that hot. It's not like a scorpion pepper or a ghost pepper, but it's, you know, toward the middle. Is it a particular kind of pepper that has a name? Tabascus something <laughs> Capsicum frutescens variety Tabasco. Oh, there we go. Well, capsicum, that's the name that we all recognize. Okay, so we've got the ripe fruit. So when he's talking about that, he's talking about peppers. He then says it's mashed to a pulp and is mixed with fine vinegar and rock salt in the proportions of one pint of vinegar and one handful of salt to every gallon of pulp. Was there a lot of trial and error in this, or did he kind of hit upon the recipe straight away, do we know? I suspect there was a lot of trial and error later because we eventually tweaked his recipe. We still used, as today, the same ingredients, salt, pepper, and vinegar. But at some point, we began aging the pepper mash, which is what we call the mashed up pepper, for three years. He only aged it for two months. And I think that the realization that, hey, this mash that's been aging for three years tastes better than two months was serendipity on somebody's part. You know, I think it was trial and error. And we also switched from stoneware jars, which is almost all Edmund used, to white oak barrels. I think that happened by accident too. I can't prove it. But that's what I suspect. Well, that aging thing is in barrels. That seems pretty traditional. I can understand that. Obviously, whiskey's aged in barrels. The patent recipe goes on and on. But he mentions a drop of bisulfate of lime is then added to every ounce of mixture for preventing fermentation. What is bisulfate of lime? Is that just lime juice? We actually don't understand that reference because his handwritten Tabasco recipes that we have, we have two or three of them, don't mention that at all. And we want it to ferment. So I once suggested to a reporter who kept asking me again and again, why would he add that? Why would he add bisulfate of lime? 
I finally said, well, I don't know. Maybe he wanted to do this. Maybe he wanted to do that. Maybe he wanted to throw off people who were trying to copy his recipe. And that reporter seized on that and then accused Edmund of lying in his patent. And it's like, well, no, I was merely speculating as to why he might have included that. I don't know. I mean, he says it's to stop the fermentation. But the thing is, we want it to ferment. Maybe at the end of that two-month fermentation process that he used, he wanted to stop the fermentation, but he doesn't explain it. Can I ask you about the logo? Because it's such a famous logo and it's the simplicity of it, I think, that makes it so special. Is it the same logo that he came up with or did someone else come up with it? Or how did it happen to be like that? The kind of strange diamond shaped label and the type font? We actually talk a lot about that here and have tried to find some explanation. For example, someone suggested, they asked me, was Edmund in any fraternal organizations? Well, yes, he was in the Grand Order of the Odd Fellows and also another one called like the Seven Wise Kings of whatever. He was very big at joining these New Orleans fraternal organizations, of which there were a great, great many in the 1800s. A lot of them centered around your occupation, but not necessarily. And so someone suggested, well, maybe these concentric circles and the diamond shape have something, you know, mystical to do with this group, kind of like the Masons. Well, I looked into that and no, I couldn't find any evidence of that whatsoever. I do know Edmund had a friend in New Orleans named Hyatt. That was his last name, who was a printer, who did a lot of Edmund's printing of logos. It could be that this Hyatt guy just threw that together and it worked. So it's just kind of one of those mysteries that's lost in time. You know, you'd recognize it anyway. Even if you took the words out, you would still recognize the layout of the shapes and the colors and that kind of thing. Can I just ask as well, what was his ambitions for it? I mean, what was it designed to be put on, for example? I mean, I put Tabasco on everything. And, you know, in diners, you put it on eggs and hash browns and whatever else. Was it a kind of universal source or was it for a particular thing? The first demographic that we aimed at were oyster consumers in the U.S. But up until around 1920, oysters were not considered a delicacy. They were considered like bread and potatoes, very working class fare. In fact, same in London, same in the U.K., oysters, it was very much the working man's food, cheap, cheap, cheap. And so we were aiming at those consumers, so much so that at one point around 1900, we began to advertise, hey, you know, it's not just for seafood. You can put it on all sorts of other stuff like salad, meatloaf. You could put in your milk. (laughs) (laughs) I've never done that. We suggested all kinds of things, you know, and eggs. Eggs became very popular for Tabasco early on. It's interesting that it was designed for kind of working people's, a condiment for working people's food, things like oysters. And I think probably that's the appeal of it. There's something unfussy about Tabasco. The fact that it's the source that you find in diners, you don't find it in fine restaurants. And I think that's the appeal. There's a kind of comfort to it, isn't it? That kind of recognition, that familiarity, that sense that it's not fussy. People like that, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's a known quantity now. One reason we're an iconic brand, we believe, is because the general public knows that when it opens a bottle of Tabasco, it's going to be an extremely high quality product. It's always been more expensive than other sauces for that reason. As I recall, Edmund was selling his sauce at first for a dollar a bottle. So it would go like for a dollar 25 retail. If I remember correctly, that would be like $15 per bottle. But it lasted a long time. Not in my house. It goes, Nor it goes, mine. <laughs> yeah, it goes pretty quick. Tell us 
did he have any competition? I mean, often when someone becomes very successful, you know, you have to fight off the competition. Was there a kind of Tabasco rival that we should know about? Yes. So in New Orleans, there was a businessman and politician and former soldier named Mansell White. And he made a pepper sauce and never sold it. He always gave it away to friends and family, as Edmund himself did with his own sauce before he decided to go commercial with it. And it wasn't until the year after Mansell White died. He died in 1863. In 64, his children and his in-laws decided to sell it commercially. And so there's this wonderful ad for Mansell White's concentrated extract of Tabasco pepper. That's how it's described in this ad. The ad is often dated to the late 1850s, but that's incorrect. Nobody ever actually bothered to go look it up until I did. Did he get into trouble for using the word Tabasco, though? No, because this is four years before Edmund. Oh, okay. So Mansell White's children started to sell this pepper sauce under the brand name Mansell White's in 1864. Then Edmund comes along in 68 with Tabasco sauce. Now, White's pepper is called the Tabasco pepper. Edmund's pepper is later called the same thing. We don't actually know that they're the same botanical species or variety. They could be, but maybe not, because I mentioned earlier that there were large quantities of allspice being exported from Mexico from the Tabasco region, which is not even a pepper. It's the berry of the myrtle tree, and yet it was called pimiento de Tabasco, which means Tabasco pepper. So to me, the fact that there was something that was not even a pepper being called Tabasco pepper kind of gives you an idea that the term was used loosely. And unfortunately, none of White's pepper specimens is known to exist today, but it would be very interesting to compare them and see if they are the same botanical. But did he sell his sauce? No. Mansell White never sold his sauce, but his children sold it. Oh, okay. So it does exist. It doesn't exist now, though, does it? I know it's complicated. <laughs> they actually do make a sauce. But see, Mansell White made two sauces. He made a red pepper sauce and he made an orange wine sauce. The orange wine sauce, which was called 1812 sauce, because White was involved fighting the British at the Battle of New Orleans, you know, the War of 1812. So the wine sauce still exists today. You can buy it regionally in the New Orleans area. But the red sauce, as far as I know, has not been produced since the late 19th century. Can I ask, did Edmund's... You know, because if he started with fairly humble origins, it's just for the local area and what have you. Was he around to see the fact that this sauce would conquer the world? He certainly saw the market for it grow rapidly because he only made Tabasco sauce roughly the last 22 years of his life. So he started making it in his 50s. He died at age 72 in 1890. And so, you know, at first he was just selling it through grocers that he knew personally in New Orleans, in Galveston, because he had spent some of the Civil War in Galveston and in New Iberia, right up the road from here, which was just a little, little town. From there, it spread to places like St. Louis up the Mississippi, to New York City, to Boston, to Philadelphia, even as far as San Francisco and Los Angeles, sort of skipping over the Western states, except for California, really. And so he did live to see that. But when he died, his lawyers valued his estate, which included the value of the diamond logo, the Tabasco factory that he had here at $14,000. 
Whereas at the height of his wealth as a banker, he had been worth $112,000. So I think he thought himself not so successful as a pepper sauce manufacturer. I'm just wondering, was there an incident or something that got it into the public consciousness as a global brand? I mean, often things appear in films or they're written about, or there's some kind of cultural context to, to things that really, really propel them. I can't think of one specific event, but by World War One, you can see that it has become a household word in the U.S. It did appear in the 1917 Charlie Chaplin Little Tramp movie, The Immigrant. And it's also in Modern Times, which he made in the 30s. So I don't know if Charlie Chaplin was a big fan, but... Sounds like he was a fan. Obviously, very often movies can be signifiers, can't they? So Charlie Chaplin used it. It's spreading its way across America. When did it become a global sensation? Was that an instant thing suddenly, or was it a slow creep? Yeah, so what happened was, after the end of World War II, U.S. briefly emerges as the one superpower. It's expanding its influence all around the world. And Walter McElhenney takes over the company. This is the grandson of Edmund, the man who invented Tabasco. Walter was an officer in the war. He's eventually a brigadier general in the Marine Corps. He decides he's going to start advertising the sauce really for the first time worldwide in non-English languages. And so we start advertising in everything from German and Italian to Spanish and Japanese. And Walter was fighting the Japanese in World War II, and now here he is selling his family's product to it and making business trips there. So what you see throughout the 1950s into the 60s is the explosion of Tabasco use around the world as one country after another begins to import it. And so I think that World War II, either directly or indirectly, had a lot to do with the spread of our product. And if you notice, the three noteworthy users of Tabasco sauce today, Japan is our biggest customer, Germany is our second biggest customer, and on a per capita basis, the tiny Pacific island of Guam. Well, what's the one thing they all have in common is a large presence of U.S. troops who may have introduced the sauce to locals. That's really interesting. And I suppose, yeah, you can imagine why people who work in the forces or people who have physical jobs will like Tabasco sauce. It just adds something to food. It adds that little bit of kick. Not uncoincidentally, Guam is also the largest per capita user of Spam luncheon meat. And uh, we have since teamed with Spam to make Tabasco flavored Spam. <laughs> there you go. Hey, listen, if I get my tattoo, my Tabasco tattoo, do I get like free Tabasco forever? I will give you some free Tabasco goodies, yes, if you do that. <laughs> you know the thing that really annoys me? When friends go to the States, I always get them to bring some American Tabasco because there is a difference in the bottle. First of all, you can get the big bottles of Tabasco in America, which you can't get in the UK. And in America, you have, you have green foil around the lid. And in the UK, you don't have that. You just have clear plastic, which is really ugly. And I like the green foil. Can we change it, please? Can we have green foil over here? Because it looks really nice. So I've been to the UK and I found Tabasco at a restaurant and it had the Queen's coat of arms on it, which I thought was really cool because you don't see that on American bottles. Interesting. Shane, I, I really enjoyed talking to you. We're out of time. But I just want to say thank you very much for illuminating us on one of my favorite foodstuffs, Tabasco. It's been a pleasure. 
And I know that history is a big thing for you guys, for your company. I know it's a thing that you cherish. So thank you very much for sharing it. Thank you. Okay, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you've been inspired to go and pepper up your cuisine with some Tabasco or similar. Or maybe go and get a tattoo of the logo if you're braver than I am. Please don't, unless you really want to, in which case do. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Just to say, if you've got a suggestion for an episode, we love doing episodes based on your suggestions. Get in touch. Could be anything, an invention, a brand perhaps that you particularly like or a food stuff, whatever it is that you're interested in, how it began, get in touch. You can email us at patented at historyhit.com and Freddie, our producer, will answer your email or read your email. Or if you like, you can DM me on Twitter or Instagram or one of those. I'm easily DMable or stop me in the street or, you know, whatever. Just shout and we'll do it. We'll look forward to hearing your suggestions. Thank you very much for your company. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.